This is a Hot Pie Original. I've only got a certain amount of bandwidth and energy, and so I've got to really prioritize the things that are most important to me. And so that requires stepping away from the inbox and stepping away from the projects and having some time to take a long walk and think. And and that's not something that is a regular part of my routine, or at least has been, that I'm trying to incorporate more so that I can make sure that Again, on these short days that we have on earth, that they're, they're lived in such a way that is in line with my priorities and values. Because it's easy to, it's easy to get lost in the long in email inbox and, and let a whole day go by without doing anything that actually matters. Dr. Michael Hull is a street doctor, professor, and the founder and executive director at the Impact Factory at the University of Texas. On this episode, we discuss using the principles of human-centered design to tackle problems facing the vulnerable and underserved. If you have an idea that you think can have massive social impact, this is definitely the episode for you. If you're looking for more information and resources to improve your health, well-being and performance and sign up for my free high performance newsletter adaptation just go to www.ericcorum.com and sign up now this is my effort to bring zero cost high performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve but now it's time to lean in and learn from the best well michael it's great to have you on the show today i'm happy to be here eric thanks for having me this is going to be a lot of fun i mean when we met in 2019 I wouldn't have thought that we'd be here doing this today, but it's the beauty of of relationships, huh? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, look at you now. Yeah, your own show. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's start talking about your small town upbringing in Indiana and kind of how that shaped the way that you see the world. Sure, I grew up in a very small rural farm town in Indiana. Uh, Wikipedia tells me we have 800 people or so. <laughs> Pretty sure I'm related to a good number of them there. Uh, my dad uh, is a retired police officer uh, for the Indiana State Police. Worked there for about 27 years. Started out as a trooper and then moved into the Special Investigations Division where he developed his expertise as an undercover detective. And uh, in particular, he was in many ways, an actor. So he mm-hmm. would, uh, he was a part of Ku Klux Klan rallies undercover, trying to take them down. He would run sting operations to buy stolen vehicles. Uh, and in particular, his specialty, if you will, is that he would meet with people who would want to kill somebody else. And he would be the hitman undercover, get them to supply a gun, get them to supply a check. He'd be mic'd up and they'd you know basically tell them what they wanted done and then they'd come in and bust them wow uh, so from a young age this idea that uh service to community with a sense of courage and bravery um, that became very important to me where mm-hmm. i grew up my mom on the other hand uh is a, a volunteer caretaker for the elderly and dying mm-hmm. in our hometown and so i can remember on many occasions going with her uh, to the homes of these folks and watching her comb their hair, hum them songs, give them massages. I mean, she was just this, she wore our Christian faith on her sleeve and set that example for me as something that was meaningful and important. Um, and I really admire her for that. So both of them on their shoulders, I mean, they're heroes to me in a, in a certain extent, set the stage for 
how it is that I wanted to live my life. Uh, the, this idea that service to others, service to community, bringing a sense of compassion, um, bringing a sense of courage to think outside the box and try different things um, was important. Wow. So that, because you, you really have a unique job right now. Really, you have three jobs. You're a street doctor, you're a professor, and then you run an entrepreneurship hub, essentially mm -hmm. for social initiatives. And That's we're right. going to talk about that. But like you, you, you know, you're like one of the most interesting men in the world. Come on. You, you belong on a, on a beer bottle somewhere. Or a beer <laughs> it's sad, sad beer. <laughs> so I know you went to Butler University and That's you right. like some things started changing when you got involved in social work. You want to talk about that for a second? Yeah, I was really lucky to work uh, with a social services agency as a case manager mm -hmm. during a lot of my time at Butler. Um, it shaped a lot of my thinking, to be frank. It humbled me in a lot of ways too. you know. Because of my parents, I knew that there were people who were struggling that were vulnerable around us. But this gave me a chance to be on a regular basis, up close and personal with them. Mm. Uh, very privileged window into their struggles and, and also the policies and programs that we have in our communities that are trying to mitigate those problems and whether or not they were working very well. Mm. Um, uh, to tell you a brief story, I remember um, a client of mine who uh, was this woman who has had a lot of struggles. She was facing problems getting enough food, housing, electricity, what have you. And she was a part of this women's savings group. So her and other women who were facing similar struggles would get together on a regular basis and put money together. And then on every six weeks, couple months, they would decide who among that group would get to use those monies on wow. whatever their greatest need might be. And so when my client's time came, uh, she spent the money to rent out a storage unit. And at the time, you know, I was in college, uh, I was a little frustrated with her because she had a lot other needs that I thought were more urgent. I thought she needed to fix her broken down car, for example, so she could get back and forth to work more often. That would supply her a regular income. Uh, but it comes out to, uh, turns out that, uh, that she bought that storage unit because she was living with a man who was forcing her to have sex with him, uh, for a cheaper rent. And so this gave her a chance to get out of that situation. And then being the entrepreneurial woman that she was, she rented out space in that storage unit to other women uh, that were in need of storing their, their things. And she used that money that she saved up over time to be able to rent a place that she could afford that was more safe. And so it was this humbling experience for me very early on to realize that, uh, that if you, if you want to solve a problem, you got to get next to the people who are actually facing it. And that there's a lot of power in listening to others as an entrepreneur or as someone who wants to make the world better. Uh, if you want to come up with things that actually matter to people. That must have been really humbling <laughs> to say the least. Did you confront her and say, Hey, I think you should be using this money a different way. And then she told you why? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also just, you know, how much of a gap there was during our relationship until that point mm. that I didn't know that piece about her history. Wow. So why did you decide to go into medicine as your, you know, method or route to be able to create social change initially? It's, it's fairly uninspiring to tell you the truth, Eric. I, uh, neither of my parents went to college and, uh, I didn't know very many people in my hometown who were doctors or in the medical field. Um, I was getting good grades. I liked science. I wanted to help people. 
I thought that that might make sense. Uh, I I will say there's been several experiences since then (laughs) along the path that have kind of uh, illustrated to me that this was the right choice, but Mm. I was lucky in the sense that I I stumbled into it and, uh, and have found a way that's gave me a lot of meaning. You didn't just end up going to medical school. You went to Stanford, Mm. which is, there's a couple places I'll be honest in the country. Like you went to the other one now that I think about it, but I love academia. Uh, and when I, every time I got a chance to go to Harvard, like you walk on that campus and you're like, I just feel different, right? Whatever. You go to Stanford, you kind of feel the same way. You had an opportunity to go there. Um, but something changed when you were at Stanford. There was an issue down in Haiti. You want to talk about that? Sure. When uh, I was in my, coming off my second year of medical school, uh, the earthquake in Port-au-Prince happened in mm-hmm. 2010. Uh, I'd been working a little bit in the global health space before then. So I'd actually been down to Haiti before. Um, and the timing was so that I was able to take a, a leave from medical school and to spend some time down there. And I don't think this will be any surprise to you or anybody else out there listening. It was a, a heartbreaking experience to see a place that uh, had already been struggling so much. Mm-hmm. And then then had this happen. Who'd you go down there with? I went down there with a few nonprofits uh, from actually Indiana Hmm. at the time, uh, a gentleman that was running one from my hometown in particular. And then we were in coordination with folks from all across the country. I mean, at the time of the earthquake, there was uh, an influx of help to the place, which was interesting to see on multiple levels, both how effective it could be and how ineffective it could be if it wasn't coordinated in particular. But that was uh, uh, most of my experience, given the stage of my training at that time, was not in a medical sense. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't have those skills yet. And so a lot of what I was doing was trying to figure out how to coordinate some of the teams, um, what our budget might be. We'd initially set out we were going to build a clinic down there. uh, and, And so a lot of the skills that I was learning at the time had a lot more to do with what one might learn in business school than what I was learning in medical school. And it was actually the impetus for me thinking, I actually need some of these other skills if I want to be able to build stuff that's going to be able to be sustainable and have an impact in the way I want to have. So you went back to Stanford and you decided to get an MBA mm-hmm. at the same time. Yeah, it's a joint degree program. So, so they already had this program there. A few people had done it before. You basically do medical school in three and a half instead of four years. And then you do business school in one and a half instead of two years. On so the back end of medical school? Yeah, you do a few years, uh, I guess three years of med school. Then you go for a full year in the business school. And then your last year is kind of a hybrid model between the two. Wow. What was like, what, what did you walk away from business school with? Cause I know Stanford's MBA program is renowned, especially for like the design thinking uh, mm-hmm. portion of it. And we've have a, both a, a lot of fellow colleagues that went through it. Yeah. I don't know if it was all in the same time, if you knew Jesse or any of those folks, but yeah. what did you walk away from going, okay, aha moments or classes that you mm-hmm. took or people you ran into? Well, not surprisingly, the people that you meet mm-hmm. are probably the most valuable part of the experience at Stanford's business school. Um, people from all walks of life, which is a bit different than medical school, if you think about it, because in medical school, a lot of folks are coming from a basic science background or public health background or, or like me, kind of pre-health and went that route. Business school has got much more diversity. So you've got folks who are in the medical field, but then you've got 
you know, educators, folks from the military, people from Wall Street, all in the same room. And so it, it, it enabled uh, this really robust discussion, mm. uh, which opened my eyes to different ways of thinking about some of these big, hairy social problems that I'd been passionate about for some time. Uh, with regards to human-centered design, that was the first exposure that I had to it. And that has become a real cornerstone of a lot of the work that I have done since. Uh, Stanford has a design school. I took a few courses there. And a lot of it is around actually hearkening back to that first story I told you, mm -hmm. getting really close to the people that are facing the problems you actually want to solve and bringing them alongside with you as you design these new solutions. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a real science behind that that I didn't appreciate that's become important. Can you give, give us like a couple like maybe key points or things that people can do. I don't know if they're building something or they're, they have this idea, like mm -hmm. how would you test that? Like what would, what would the simple thing that somebody could do to see if like, does this thing really going to work? And yeah. is the way I'm going about it actually going to help somebody? One of the key principles of human sim design in, in general is what we call rapid cycle uh, prototyping and iteration. Mm -hmm. So the idea is that if you spend months coming up with an idea, building it, tweaking it, and you're still in your ivory tower and you haven't gone out to the community, the likelihood of that being something that people really want and need uh, is pretty low mm -hmm. compared to if you build something really quickly, a minimal viable product, MVP is what we call it. And you put it in the hands of your potential user, your potential client, customer, watch them interact with it, see how they use it, see how they use it incorrectly, ask them questions. Uh, you can get that feedback, go back to the drawing table, build something else quickly take it back to them and you repeat that process. And so in the same amount of time that you might've set in your ivory tower for six months, you could have had multiple iterations of your product or service alongside these folks and then end up on the other end with something much more valuable, much more close to what it is that they actually want or need. Wow. Now you've taken that and, and run with it and what you're doing right now. You want to talk about, you went on to, you went on to Harvard, did your, was it pediatrics, right? That's right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but now you're here in Austin, Texas. Hook them. Hook them. <laughs> I'm an Aggie gig them, but I love my, my Longhorn friends. All right, I'm out of here. This is yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love my Longhorn friends. Um, but you've got a really interesting role at the university. Let's talk about that and, and what you're doing and how you're engaging the community. And yeah, I'm really excited to uh, talk about some of these startups that have come out of this. Though. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm very fortunate. I have an awesome uh, role with a lot of diversity. So mm -hmm. as you mentioned, uh, one day a week, I'm a physician for children experiencing poverty, often without health insurance, often experiencing homelessness. So that's my very privileged window, again, into the struggles that our local communities are facing and and, and also the gaps that an entrepreneur could plug along the way. And you're, you're going around in a vehicle, right? Yeah. It's a, it's a mobile unit. Mm -hmm. uh, it travels to homeless shelters, food pantries, and others, uh, places looking for the hard to reach high risk children and families in the community. What's it called? Children's health express. Okay. And it's based out of uh, Dell children's medical center. Okay. Which is our local children's hospital. Um, another day a week I spend teaching on campus. So on the main campus, I teach undergraduates and graduates, uh, classes on human-centered design, classes on U.S. health and social policy, civic engagement, uh, and mostly around the world of social entrepreneurship, which mm -hmm. leads into my third role. Um, I lead what's called the Impact Factory, mm -hmm. which is our university's engine for social innovation and entrepreneurship. So we 
have different pillars of work. Um, one is a prototyping pillar where we have students or faculty who have a great idea for how to make the world better. And we help them get that to launch by providing them necessary resources or pieces of knowledge that they might need. We have an acceleration portfolio, which is to say, as we identify programs, wherever they might be in Texas or across the United States that are promising or evidence-based, we help them connect with the right resources, human capital, community partners on the ground, potential funding to come and do their good work right here in the Lone Star State. Mm -hmm. We've got a teaching portfolio, which is, as it sounds, lots of experiential learning programs, workshops, and we have a capacity building portfolio, which is as we identify evidence-based practices of our own or uncover certain data that we think should be shared, we work on getting that in the hands of not just academics, but in the hands of policymakers and others in positions of influence who could help us scale up that good work in a faster way. Wow. Now you've had some pretty cool things come out of your experience. So one of them is called street cred. You want to talk about the story behind that? Yeah, sure. So street cred actually started back in Boston uh, with my co-founder, Dr. Lucy Marshall. The backdrop to it is that I had done this internship at the Department of Federal Affairs for the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is our overarching governing body of pediatricians. And the president of that at the time tasked me with looking into the various anti-poverty federal programs that the government offered and which ones had the biggest bang for the buck on child poverty rates. And it turns out both in rural and urban settings, the tax credits are leading the way. Mm. And I didn't know anything about tax credits and understanding the connection between poverty and health. Poverty makes you sick. The tax credits were having an impact on poverty. Well, gosh, if somebody like me who's taken an oath to improve people's health, why don't I know about these things? So I started asking my patients when I came back from the internship, do you get your taxes done? How much do you pay to get them done? Do you get monies back? What do you spend the monies on? Um, and And it hit me that, gosh, we ask about all these sensitive topics when people come in to see us. We ask about sex and alcohol and drugs. Why aren't we asking about money if it has an impact on people's health? Uh, and so a couple months into that journey, this mother of two, a toddler and a newborn came into my office and I was asking her these questions and she said, that's great. I had no idea that these monies could have that kind of impact on my health or my child's health. Could you help me find a place in Boston at the time that would do my taxes for free? So I said, sure. So we sat there in the office, we got on Google, we searched it, we found a place. Fast forward a couple of weeks, she comes back with her newborn and toddler and tells me how she'd taken two buses and a train across Boston to get to this free tax prep center, only to find that it was closed because they didn't have the budget to update their website mm. and they didn't update the hours and she couldn't that get it. That had in. to be frustrating. Super frustrating for her, I'm sure. But being the tenacious mom that she was, uh, she went back on that same two buses and a train the next week, only to find that she didn't have the right paperwork. Uh, And so she came back to me and she said, Hey, you know, uh, I waited on you for 30 minutes today in your waiting room. I went to H and R block and paid 400 bucks to get my taxes done. Wouldn't it be nice that since I'm here wasting time anyway, we could just do my taxes while I'm here. Great idea. Great idea. So uh, (laughs) she deserves the credit. So street cred is this organization, uh, now national nonprofit that helps people file taxes, claim tax refunds, build budgets, credit, wealth, while they wait on guys like me running behind in clinic. That is awesome story. Like where, I just think it's so incredible that, you know, you're building these things alongside the person. 
that's experiencing the problem. And that sounds so, um, you know, like, oh, well, everybody should do that. But it just doesn't happen that way. And um, I know personally, like the first time I ever tried to build a product, mm-hmm. I did exactly the wrong thing. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I got this great idea. I'm going to build this thing. And then you put it out there and nobody likes it. Yeah. And then there's like, it takes you a hundred different iterations till it finally works. Mm-hmm. Um, I just think it's amazing your mindset of how you're doing this. And especially with something like poverty, like there is a, there's a separation you know what I'm saying? And we talk about this a lot and on the news right now, class separation, social, equi- uh, social economic separation. But unless like you experience the problem with the person, mm-hmm. like there's no way you can really understand how to help them. Uh, you have other initiatives like Good Apple, Main Street Relief. It seems like if I go on your LinkedIn profile, you've got tons of things you're doing. Um, you want to talk about those other two real quick? Yeah, I'd yeah. love to. Um so Good Apple is a grocery delivery service on a mission to end food insecurity. Mm-hmm. Uh, we launched back in November of 2019. Uh, and for every box of fresh, locally sourced organic produce that we deliver to a customer, we deliver another box of those same fresh foods, as well as some other pantry staples like grain, uh, dairy products <clears throat> to the doorstep of some family that's been identified as facing food insecurity and food insecurity. Just, just to clear the air is, is basically when a family has to make a decision between buying food or some other sort of basic necessity. So mm-hmm. if I write a prescription for a medicine and they got to go fill that prescription and it costs a certain amount of money, families facing food insecurity are faced with a decision. Do I fill the prescription or do I buy food? So we launched that program in 2019. And by the way, this was alongside some student entrepreneurs at the University of Texas at Austin. They deserve the credit. Mm-hmm. They were down in the weeds getting this done. I was the old guy uh, trying to advise them along the way. Uh, had some success early and then the pandemic hit. And what we realized that is that at the time we had this great infrastructure for food delivery. And there were a whole host of people, not just families with children, who was our initial uh, clientele. There were older adults people with weak immune systems, people with chronic disease who were stuck at home Mm. because of the stay at home ordinances. And because it was dangerous to get on public transportation or go in the grocery store where they might be exposed to the coronavirus. And so we leveraged our existing infrastructure along with partnerships from cross industry and philanthropy uh, to start what we called stay home, stay healthy, which was essentially similar delivery service of goods to the doorsteps of people in need. Um, and I think to date we've delivered a little over 850,000 pounds of food to a little, uh, somewhere around 30,000 people in the central Texas area. How many people are working on this project? Lots. Uh, we've got a core team uh, of, of entrepreneurs in the good apple, uh, in the good apple cohort, but we've got partnerships with, for example, uh, the city of Austin, private transportation companies, uh, nonprofits in town who've helped us identify the people most in need, health clinics who've similarly helped us identify the most uh, in need, uh, philanthropists, folks from the private and public sector. So it's a it's an army of folks, if you will. And I think it illustrates this power of uh, of crises, especially mm-hmm. to bring people together from across disciplines to develop these solutions that have a chance to make people's lives better. There is power at the intersection of disciplines and. Um, and, and good apple really brings that home to me as something that I need to continue to do. 
Wow. Is it self-sustainable or is it an organization where they're actively seeking funds or? So Good Apple, its, its original business model is, is self-sustaining. Uh, so it's, you know, we use the profit margins from our customer base mm-hmm. to subsidize the cost of the impact side of our business, mm-hmm. uh, which is important. I think, you know, uh, I've certainly been a part of nonprofits who have struggled every day to figure out where do we have that next check coming from a generous philanthropist. And in times of, you know, a global pandemic, for example, some of those funds get shifted to very needed organizations. And that means that other organizations are struggling during these times, just like, just like some of the small businesses around. So is that your model to, or one of the things you try to encourage is like, try to create a self-sustainable model, make maybe use profits to drive these other initiatives? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, we have other models. Another program in our portfolio is called Early Bird. It's a health system integrated scholarship program for low-income families. So as Mm -hmm. parents achieve certain healthy milestones, like coming to doctor's appointments or dentist appointments or signing up their kiddo for pre-kindergarten, then we put scholarship dollars in the college savings accounts of their babies Mm -hmm. in hopes of incentivizing short-term behavior that's healthy with these long-term impact on education. And we've tried to align the things that we're incentivizing with the priorities of health insurance payers, for example, in hopes that if we can move the needle on the outcomes, then potentially the health insurance payer down the line might pick up the tab because it helps their bottom line. Mm -hmm. So there's different ways of thinking about how to make things self-sustaining and revenue generating. Uh, But yes, I think it's important that that's at the core of whatever we're trying to do. You, I, I just keep coming back to this in my head. You are doing a lot of things, very important things, social initiatives. You're a teacher, you're a doctor. I'm a dad, all, and, a dad and a husband. That's the most important. Yeah. I mean, you're doing a lot of stuff. How, how do you keep it all straight and, and moving forward? I don't. Eric, (laughs) that's the honest truth. I'm struggling to keep up some days. Uh, I'm I'm lucky to have a a community of people around me all the time that care about these issues. I mean, that's the, that's the bottom line thing on any of this work is that um, not everybody has a chance to come on Dr. Eric's podcast, right? (laughs) There's a whole host of people who get up every day and work their hearts out to help people in need without any recognition like this. Uh, and so it's a team effort. Um, I've tried to surround myself with people that I trust and admire. Um, I've tried to surround myself with uh, a personal board of advisors, if you will, people okay. who can help keep me accountable to my values uh, and who can, who can say, hey, you're, you're, you're approaching burnout here. You're approaching uh, you know, spreading yourself too thin. How often Let's do think you about prioritizing. It's, it's not a board meeting per se. It's, it's a group of people that I don't even know if they know they're on my personal board of advisors yeah. <laughs> that I talk to on a regular basis, um, you know, weekly to every six months, depending mm-hmm. on the individual, um, just as a means of keeping me true to who I am. And they, and they fulfill different roles. Some of them are cheerleaders who are, you know, hype me up and make me feel good about the work. Some of them are straight shooters who would say, you know, you're not doing this right. Let's, let's figure out a different way to go about it. And then, mm-hmm. you know, take the, take the humility hit and, 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 and move forward. So, um, yeah, I, I think the bottom line is I'm not always keeping it straight. And I think that's something important for people to, to hear. Yeah. And and it's a team effort. And you got to be thoughtful about surrounding yourself with people that, that can help. 
if you're married to the right person, that person will let you know as well. <laughs> it's for happened sure. to me quite a few times. <laughs> yeah, we share that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, 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 I mean, you have such a great heart and you're a very likable guy. Um, you're also, you have to be pretty driven. I mean, you have to be. I mean, I am. I mean, I think I, how do you balance that? You know what I'm saying? The, 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 I want to work hard. I want to be the best I can be, mm-hmm. but then I also want to be like engaged with my family and yeah. have sustainable relationships. Yeah. Uh, I'll say a couple of things. My daughter just turned one and that's, that's changed my perspective on what to be driven about. Mm. Um, it is of utmost importance to me that when she looks back on her life, she knows that I was there and involved and engaged. Uh, and so that takes, that takes shifting of priorities and energy and, and learning how to say no more often than I used to, to opportunities that might advance one of these programs that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing I'll say is that, uh, I think anybody who had the privilege to be where I am on a weekly basis alongside the families that, that I get to see, uh, and take care of would be similarly driven to do something about it. It is, and maybe this is one of the, the secret sauces of, of what keeps me going at least is this balance between having an opportunity to be up close and personal in a one-on-one way in service to someone else to, to really try to, um, incorporate their pain in some piece of my soul Mm -hmm. to keep me to move forward while also having the opportunity to be at this 30,000 foot view level, trying to coordinate, how do we change a system or how do we build an organization that could address the problem that that individual is facing? I know you well enough to know that, you know, if an individual facing homelessness or poverty or hunger was sitting across from you, you'd want to make their life better. And I think in my experience, the vast majority of people that I met my whole life would do the same. And so there's nothing magic about that other than it takes effort to purposefully be out in the community and not sitting in our comfortable ivory towers, if you will, mm-hmm. every day. This, I just had a thought pop up and, you know, it's, I think about people that created amazing social change, like LBJ, mm-hmm. right? He was a teacher mm-hmm. to start in rural America, Right. It's almost as if, and you know, he he got into politics. He never kind of lost touch with that of who mm-hmm. he was. He would come back to his ranch, right? Yeah, quite frequently, and that kind of puts you back in touch with who you are, what it's all about. I think about the world of politics and people that are, are in positions to create change. And I don't know if we have a commentary on this or not, but it's like, you know, you are create helping create these organizations but then you're also down in the grassroots Mm -hmm. it seems to me is like that would be very helpful for some of the people that are making policy i i think for everybody yeah uh you know main street relief is another one of the organizations in our portfolio Um, that came out of this experience with my parents who run a small business now in rural indiana who when the pandemic struck and the economic recession followed were needing some help to apply for some of these federal loans. And when I was helping them, it it was difficult. Things were confusing. I didn't, I didn't understand a lot of the process. And that made me think, gosh, there's probably a lot of other 
mom and pop shops around the country who might need some similar help. And then alongside that, I was having folks like you from my presidential leadership scholars day or classmates from business school who were saying, you know, I've got some skills and I want to help, but I'm not sure where to plug in. Mm -hmm. So main street relief matches those two uh, parties of people. Uh, And I tell you that because, um, Yes, we've had some great success helping the small businesses stay afloat during this time. But the other wonderful gift that Main Street Relief has given me uh, is this great sense of hope that when we connect people from different walks of life who look different, pray different, think different, um, there is there is possibility and maybe even probability that some of these prejudices will fall away Mm. and then we can actually get something done. Um, We had not too long ago this uh, banker in rural Texas, very conservative gentleman, get matched with this uh, graphic designer in downtown LA. Love it. Very progressive (laughs) young lady. And they are self-described best buddies now. And they've had a chance to talk about the George Floyd trial and other Mm -hmm. types of uh, issues in our society today that cause division. Uh, and, And it paints this picture that if we come out from behind whoever we portray ourselves on social media to be and we listen to folks, get to know one another, that there's there's a chance that there can be some unity uh, in this country we love. Uh, and and, and then that, that gives me a lot of hope. I'm with you. Like in locker rooms hmm. where I've spent most of my life, uh, you'd see a smattering of America. Hmm. You know, some, you know, different. I remember like University of Kentucky, we had people from Kentucky, Ohio, Florida, you know, all different walks of life doesn't matter what school we're at. And it's just like everybody comes together for a common cause, but you're sitting next to somebody every single day who may be totally different than you, but you learn to become more relational and to, to engage the person first before you can get to the solution. So I think that's, that is absolutely fantastic. See it in the military. Saw it on the small scale. You see it, saw it at my wedding. You know, people from my hometown who think about politics in one way, coming together with people that I met along the way in California, Massachusetts, who were there for the common cause of yeah. celebrating love and, and and had a great time. You know, yeah. it's possible for us to to have those kinds of relationships with people that that we might otherwise write off if we saw whatever the news media was putting out about that population. No question. I, I, I've got hope. I've got a lot of hope. I know the the presidential scholars program changed me in a lot of ways. There are some folks in there that I got to know and become really close with that. I just wouldn't like, you know, if you go to your default mode, it's wherever you grew up and what was ever comfortable for you. And, uh, and it's, you know, we are a, a tapestry of different people. And I think that's the beauty of it. Mm. And we got to, you know, I love how when you go out and serve, that's really like where that connection happens. And so I I would just challenge folks, I don't know, that are listening to this to go serve in a way that makes you uncomfortable. You know, don't, you know, at church, like, you know, it's like, Oh, go help serve. Well, I I love meeting people. So I'm going to go greet somebody. I'm going to go help this in my community. We'll go do something that really makes you uncomfortable. (laughs) And then I think it'll create a new type of connection and a, and a new type of bond. Um, I love the way that you think. And I love the way that you're solving problems. How do you help young people see things differently? Like, how are you helping them shift their mental model? Because you're in the classroom with them right now. Mm-hmm. What do you do? You have any like some, I don't know, some ideas of how you can help this next generation do that? Are there things that you're doing right now to do that? 
Well, I'll say, first of all, it is so inspiring and fun and humbling to be in the classroom with tomorrow's leader. I mean, at the University of Texas at Austin, in, in every course that I teach, it's full of people who are going to go out and change the world. I mean, mm. That's the motto of UT. What starts here changes the world. It's, it's going to happen. Uh, and so I'm confident that with or without me, <laughs> good things yeah. are, are to come. Uh, I, I think the thing that I say a lot uh, to students is that uh, you don't have to wait to have those letters behind your name. Take this or that course to make the world better. Mm. Uh, and that's been proven over and over in some of the projects that we talked about today, where uh, students, because they've been out in the community next to people who need their help, uh, humbled themselves enough to listen to what people actually need, leverage the resources that they have because of their relative privilege as being a longhorn, mm -hmm. uh, have, have had positive impact on the lives of people who need it. So I, I say a lot, start now. The problems are too big, too urgent. Folks are struggling, uh, too much. And, and you've got to, you got to go, uh, because, uh, no need to wait. I love it. So this podcast is about high performance. Hmm. All right. What does that word mean or that term high performance mean to you? I think it's changed over time. For me now, and this harkens back to our time in the Presidential Leadership Scholars Program, high performance means uh, making decisions, leading people, and doing so in a way that's aligned with my core values. Mm. Uh, as you know, part of that program was trying to get us to narrow them down to the core ones that will drive our decisions will be the foundation of our decisions that provide the lens through which to look when we have a hard decision in front of us. And so I'm not perfect at this by any means or even close to it, but that's become the definition for me. Mm. We're in a really privileged position, you and I, Eric, to have opportunities to do uh, things for the world that, uh, that we have, we have options. And so I want to make sure that in the days that I have left, however long those might be, that I'm making decisions that are aligned with the things that are most important to me. And that comes from faith, that comes from experiences I've had on the ground, that comes with friendships, uh, comes from friendships like the ones that we share. Uh, and and I think that's the most important for, for at least performing in a way that at the end of the day feels meaningful and purposeful. I love it. So what do you do? Like, do you have any habits or routines to take care of yourself mm. so that you can keep doing that. I don't have any rocket science answers here. I think having a little girl and seeing the world through her eyes has been really helpful in uh, refreshing <laughs> my screen, if you will, yeah. and motivating me to keep going. Mm -hmm. Um, as a physician, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that even though I don't do it as often as I should, that exercising is important, that uh, eating healthier is important. Um, deep friendships where I can be vulnerable with folks, mm -hmm. uh, sharing the struggles that I'm facing. I lost a, 
a little cousin who I considered a little brother uh, on Thanksgiving day this last year, I've had some valleys along the way as a result. Mm -hmm. And because I had close friends that I trusted who I knew no matter how I showed up, we're going to love and care and respect for me uh, and show respect for me. I was able to you know, share the feelings that I was having. And, and that, that meant a lot for my mental health, which, mm. which I think, you know, people need to talk about more uh, high performance, if you will, requires not only a, an able body, but an able mind. And we got to take care of our minds just like we would our bodies. And so um, having a support network that can, that you can lean on in times of need, and you can celebrate with in times of triumph, uh, mm. I think is, it goes a long way to sustainability for, at least for me. I love it. What are you learning about right now? Or are there, are there books you're reading or do you listen to pot? What is it you're leading into right now to get better? Cause I know that, you know, you, you have a great mind and people that, that are uh, on the forefront are always try, trying to learn or get better. Is there a skill you're trying to improve? Is there a book you're reading right now? Uh, I'm reading president Obama's memoir at the moment. Uh, so, uh, I think similar to the presidential leadership scholars program in a way, uh, it has shed light on the idea that, that these are human people who've been in these leadership positions and who made mistakes, who had to humble themselves along the way, who had to take care of themselves along the way. Um, and that, and that has helped me to, to dream bigger, if you will, that, um, uh, if I want to make the change in the world that I hope to see, uh, that that there's no reason to to cut it short. Let's go for the stars. Um, ways of improvement. I, <laughs> I've got a lot of a lot of lot of ways to improve. I think um, I've been trying to. I mean, this is a good example of something that I don't do very often. Come on a podcast and and talk about some of these things. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a skill to build up, and I'm honored that I'm here to have a chance to do so <laughs> with you. <laughs> so thanks. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to, I'm trying to prioritize more. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, having a, having a daughter and a wife who I adore, uh, amid some of the busyness that the pandemic has, has, has given, uh, with some of the projects that we talked about on top of some of these personal deep struggles with, uh, the loss of a loved one has caused me to realize I've only got a certain amount of bandwidth and energy. And so I've yes. got to really prioritize the things that are most important to me. And so that requires stepping away from the inbox and stepping away from the projects and having some time to take a long walk and think. And, and that's not something that I, is a regular part of my routine, or at least has been that I'm trying to incorporate more so that I can make sure that again, on these short days that we have on earth, that they're, they're lived in such a way that is in line with my priorities and values. So it's easy to, it's easy to get lost in the long in email inbox and, and let a whole day go by without doing anything that actually matters. Hmm. That's something that uh, this past year I've really leaned into personally. And uh, I, I, I like, you know, people have day planners. Yeah. I've always been like, I tried it, didn't work. Finally found something that worked for me. And just like having the discipline to plan out my quarter. Like what it is I want to get done. And then like at the beginning of the week, evaluating what are the big three things I have to do mm. and then creating a plan during the week and then being disciplined at the end of the week to evaluate myself. And it may, I, it really gives me a lot of sense of, of just fulfillment to be able to go, 
okay, I, I did the big three. These <laughs> yeah. other things didn't happen, but that's okay. I, and, and it, I don't know for me, cause I, I want to get everything done and I want to do it. That was like a big game changer for me this year. So maybe we talk offline about that, but that was really, really helpful for me. So mm. the people that are listening to this that are like, wow, I really want to help. How, where can people find you? How can they help these initiatives? I think the easiest way is probably to go to the impactfactory.org. Okay. Go to our contact page, send me a note. It'll get to me eventually. Uh, and I'd be happy to interact with, learn from, collaborate with anybody who's excited about tackling some of these big, hairy social problems that we know are making people less healthy and harming their prosperity. Awesome. Michael, I'm privileged to call you a friend and I'm just so thankful you came on today. I appreciate it. Likewise, Eric. Thank you very much. If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support The Blueprint by doing one of the following. If you're listening on an audio platform like Apple or Spotify, please subscribe. If you're listening on Apple, would you please leave us a five-star review and give us some feedback? Your feedback is tremendously valuable. Finally, if you watch us on YouTube, uh, subscribe and leave us some feedback. We'd love to know how to improve the show and which topics you're loving. But until next time, this is Eric Korn. Thank you for tuning in. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.